Welcome everyone to the Sydney Ideas Lecture. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Ura Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And as we share our own knowledge, teaching and learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of the country. The format for this afternoon is going to be a presentation from each of our guests. We'll start with uh, Maria Burnett, Human Rights Watch, Human uh, senior, senior Africa researcher, and then Nicholas Sofio, Ugandan Human Rights Lawyer. And we'll open it up to the floor of your questions. I'm really delighted to have these researchers and advocates here. We know that the University of Sydney has watched and followed, at least my students have watched and followed what we call the deterioration of rights here in our own country. And sometimes it's easy to focus on what's nearby and to lose a little bit of perspective. And um, I'm grateful that we have two really, really terrific and, and, and well-respected um, uh, advocates coming to us to, from whom we can learn today. So I'll do the bios first, and then I'm just going to let you guys take a look. So uh, Maria Burnett um, covers uh, Uganda, um, emerging human rights issues in Central Africa, and supervises work on Somalia and Kenya. Um, Maria has worked with Human Rights Watch since 2005, first as the Burundi researcher in the Bujumbura field office. And um, Maria's worked on a range of human rights issues, including child soldiers, torture, and killings by intelligence and counter-terrorism counter agents, abuses by the Lord's Resistance Army, and justice reform in Central and East Africa. Uh, Nicholas Opio is a leading human rights lawyer and the founder of a human rights organization called Chapter 4 Uganda. And he's worked since 2005 to defend civil liberties in Uganda, often for free and on behalf of the society's most vulnerable and marginalized. Opio has worked on a broad range of critical human rights issues in Uganda, and he was a key leader in drafting and advocating for Uganda's law criminalizing torture. He has successfully argued several high-level constitutional challenges, including the notorious Anti-Homosexuality Act of 2013, which my students will have talked about, and this was declared null and void in August 2014. So it is really my great honor and privilege to welcome our guests. Thank you so much. I'm going to attempt to use this microphone and see how it goes. All right. Thank you all so much for coming today. I'm uh, really grateful for the invitation, and I'm really happy to be here with my good friend, Nicholas. We've come a long way, and it's our first time in Australia, so uh, it's great to be here. And uh, Nicholas actually ate a kangaroo pizza today, so I feel like he's fully indoctrinated now into life down under. Um, so I thought what I would do is maybe describe a little bit of what brought me to Human Rights Watch and then talk a bit about my work at Human Rights Watch. Um, I manage a set of countries, but I've been a researcher on a couple of different countries, and then I'll, I'll end on Uganda so Nicholas can talk a bit about uh, the current human rights situation in Uganda, but I'm happy to um, take a, a questions on anything afterwards, and I want to make sure we leave plenty of time for question and answer. So. Um, I started out um, as a low-income housing architect uh, working in different low-income communities, largely in Africa, um, and found that over my time working as an architect, a lot of my clients had a lot of legal problems 
And the truth is that what they needed was somebody to complain to the local government officials about their problems with access to water and access to electricity and access to other uh, basic services. And so ultimately, after a bit of time as a journalist uh, writing about those issues and a bit of time with Human Rights Watch very long ago, I decided to go ahead and pursue my legal studies and, and focus on international human rights law. And I was really fortunate to be uh, asked to be the researcher in Burundi working under Alison DeForge. Um, Alison was one of the sort of preeminent human rights activists uh, focusing on Central Africa. And she was one of the people who really established and initiated Human Rights Watch's methodology. I mean, for those of you who maybe don't know too much about the history of Human Rights Watch, we're actually a relatively young organization compared to Amnesty and other groups. Um, the organization was founded, uh, well, it was founded with the idea that we wouldn't do the sort of big grassroots membership the way Amnesty does and that kind of mass letter writing, that we would try to do meticulous, methodologically focused research with, um, you know, the best facts possible and that we would take those facts to people who were in positions of power. And so the goal has always been in our work to focus on stakeholders of various governments who had the power and the leverage to change situations and to improve human rights protections. And Allison's work was really groundbreaking. She was um, the person who wrote the, the, basically the canonical history of the Rwandan genocide called Leave None to Tell the Story. She was a key witness at the International Tribunal for Rwanda. She testified in all of the genocide trials that went on there. Um, and uh, she has been a longstanding advocate for um, justice and accountability for abuses in Central Africa. She also managed our work in Burundi, so I worked under her for several years. And she's actually the person who Human Rights Watch named the award that Nicholas is receiving from Human Rights Watch. Um, they named the award after her, after she passed away in 2009 in a plane crash. So we, um, we come uh, with her in mind and in spirit sort of all the time. Um, I'll say also that I think Uganda and our work on Uganda, I eventually became the Uganda researcher after many years in Burundi, um, was another country that sort of holds an important place in Human Rights Watch history. Um, you know, years ago we didn't have very many researchers. Right now we have about 25 researchers. We don't cover every single country in Africa. Um, but Uganda is a country that we had worked on since the very early days of the Africa Division, largely because of the conflict between the Lord's Resistance Army and the government of Uganda. Um, so as many of you know, that, that conflict started in the late 1980s. It had a huge toll on the civilian population, abuses on both sides, um, and horrific setting uh, in the internally displaced people's camps there. Uh, Human Rights Watch did a lot of work to document the situation for children who were being abducted by the rebels, to look at abuses by the Ugandan army, um, and uh, push for those cases, the situation there to be uh, referred to the ICC. That's a long and complicated saga. We could talk about more maybe during question and answer. But our work on Uganda has not ended now that the LRA war has uh, shifted outside of Uganda and more into Central African Republic and South Sudan. Um, over my time of working on Uganda, which has been about the last eight years, um, you know, I think what we've noted has been a real deterioration in respect for basic rights. President Museveni has been in power since 1986. There have been a series of elections with really questionable um, respect for international standards. Nicholas can talk more about the most recent elections, but 
We've done, I think, a really broad range of research in Uganda. Um, I've been to pretty much every part of the country and looked at everything from, you know, pretty standard rights abuses, frankly, things like torture and extrajudicial killings by various security units to sort of more cutting-edge human rights issues, looking at, for example, the responsibility of mining companies to ensure that indigenous communities in the pastoralist part of Uganda um, w and to ensure that, they, that the pastoralist communities would be able to give you know, free prior and informed consent as mining work was starting to take off in that region. We've pushed on you know, some new stakeholders, I think, for international human rights work, the World Bank, for example, to ensure that their loans to Uganda involved a real, very explicit discussion of respect for human rights and to ensure that human rights would be respected in the projects that the World Bank and the African Development Bank would fund. Um, and because Uganda is still donor dependent, about 18% of its budget comes from uh, international donors. You know, we continue to pressure those donors who fund various things in Uganda to ensure that they talk about human rights with the government and that they are concerned for human rights protections, you know, particularly, for exa example, abuses by security forces. As many of you know, Uganda remains a really key ally for many Western countries in the war against terror. Uh, and we have long-standing concerns about abuses in the war on terror around the world. Um, for those of you who are interested, I would encourage you to look at our website. Many countries feel that we pick on them in particular, but we actually do pick on all countries quite equally. Um, we uh, have done a lot of work on the United States and in Europe, um, you know, on things going on right now, like the refugee crisis in Europe, but also, for example, on uh, torture by the CIA and extraordinary renditions. We've had a long-standing effort to try to push for accountability for torture by the CIA. So this is not to pick on countries in Africa more than any other country. We argue that all countries need to be respecting these international conventions to which they have you know, signed up. Um, so at this point, I would say that you know, Uganda is in a sort of delicate uh, situation. The president is going to be inaugurated on May 12th. Um, Historically, over the last several years, there's been a real challenge with public order management and abuses in the context of public order management. The government argues that, you know, protesters are anti-government and are seeking to disturb the peace or are violent. Um, you know, in my work, I've, I've tried very hard over the years to document each individual killing that has taken place in the context of public demonstrations in the last several years in Uganda. And despite what the chief of police and others have said, you know, we just haven't found evidence that protesters were, you know, seeking to use lethal force against security forces. In many cases, we have at least a couple of cases of children who've been killed while hiding inside their homes. We, um, you know, continue to push for the government to investigate and hold individuals responsible. We frequently are asked the question, oh, Human Rights Watch, you come with all of this evidence, you report your thing, but what really changes? And, you know, it's a valid criticism that in certain contexts, advocacy and change remains extremely difficult. Um, we have a lot of access in Uganda, and I do give the government credit for not barring us access. Governments in the region do do that with some regularity, and the government of Uganda has, I think, does deserve credit for uh, being willing to take the scrutiny that we have been dishing out over the years. Um, that being said, you know, I think that the fight for justice and accountability in this context where we have a sort of slow suffocation of basic rights uh, and a governance situation that is basically about keeping the current president in power to some extent potentially at all costs, 
um, you know, advocacy is a real challenge. Um, and in that context, I would say that the important thing that we can contribute is, um, is to create an accurate historical record to ensure that the names of victims are recorded, that the incidents and the evidence is gathered, you know, that I have all the post-mortem reports so that, you know, potentially someday there'll be openings for justice and accountability and that we'll be able to see um, witnesses, you know, heard before a court of law. And also so that the truth is that we all know exactly what went on, that the propaganda of all sides and the politicians doesn't sort of overwhelm the truth um, in any one of these settings. Um, so our advocacy continues, and I do a great deal of advocacy with the Ugandan government and with Uganda's parliament, you know, but despite some substantial odds. On a personal note, we spend a lot of time with people who are in, uh, you know, very difficult situations. It's not easy to show up when someone's child has just been shot and sort of ask them to recount what happened that day and then ask them, you know, three years later whether they're willing to be interviewed or make a film about how they feel about it. Many of them feel like they've been forgotten, that the government doesn't care about them. They uh, sometimes are under pressure from family or others to sort of drop calling for justice and drop participating. And so uh, it's been really important for, for my own well-being and I think for the victims with whom I interact to know that there are good lawyers who are willing to help them push for justice. And as I said, it's not that we always think that we will be successful, but we think that it's important to keep trying. And I would say persistence is a really critical component of, um, of our, our daily jobs. So in that context, Nicholas and I have worked together a lot. Um, he's one of the few lawyers in town who is willing to work pro bono on cases that are not particularly um, popular and are frequently controversial. Uh, and it's been really important uh, to be able to encourage victims to go to lawyers like Nicholas and to tell their stories so that we can potentially push for them in the Ugandan courts, push for them in the East African court, push for those cases to come before the African Commission to really exhaust the range of remedies that are available uh, and to continue to try to ensure that the truth can come out and individuals will be held accountable. So um, I will mention maybe also that, as I said, I work on Kenya and Somalia. That means that we work in a context where international humanitarian law is applicable in Somalia. Um, which is a, a very different situation. So Human Rights Watch does a lot of work in very active conflict zones, and I would say that's quite distinct from the kind of work we do in settings like Kenya and Uganda. Somalia work is very difficult. Security for our researchers is very difficult. Um, and, uh, and, but we, you know, we keep doing it with sometimes, you know, uh, I would say some serious limitations because of security both to our staff and to the people we want to interview. And I think the security of the people we want to interview remains a really massive priority and weighs on me sort of constantly because we can't protect them once we leave. So reprisals remains, you know, a really serious concern. Um, across East Africa, I would say, you know, our greatest concern that's sort of cross-cutting are these government attacks on civil society. Um, you know, we've seen each government basically in the region um, make efforts to amend uh, NGO laws to constrain the space for civil society. Ethiopia has some of the most restrictive laws on the books in the world, uh, controlling how civil society can operate, where their funding can come from. And the allegation is that civil society is, you know, funded by foreign agents and not indigenous and, um, you know, the product of uh, opposition forces or even terrorist threats. Um, 
and Kenya has pending some similar laws on civil society space. In Uganda, we have a new law that's just been passed, which Nicholas can talk about. I think it's a really important issue. I mean, for those of you working on human rights issues, looking at how civil society is, is um, allowed to operate or not allowed to operate um, is an issue that touches on pretty much any human rights issue. Because if civil society, local civil society, international civil society can't function, you know, it's really devastating to free expression and access to information. Um, and I think it's probably the single greatest challenge, you know, cross-cutting challenge we face in our region. But it's not only true in East Africa. You know, Russia and other countries have really led the charge on that. And troublingly, I think access to information, maybe with social media and all of that, has been expanding. But at the same time, it also means that um, you know, we see leaders learning from each other about how to crush the space for human rights activism. Um, and it, uh, it remains a really uh, important challenge, I think. So for the students in the room, I would encourage you to you know, focus on that and take it up, because this is a vulnerable and really important time for human rights activism. I will stop there and take questions uh, whenever. Okay, I hope this works. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Maria mentioned, this afternoon I had the privilege of eating a kangaroo meat. Um, the menu, and the thing that I picked on the menu, says coat of arms. So in, in my country, you would never dare put a coat of arms on a menu in a restaurant. Leave alone kill a national bird, which is a crested crane, or indeed the, the cob, which is, which is our national animal. Uh, but it was very delicious meat, I must, I must say. Um, having seen a beautiful kangaroo uh, yesterday um, it was even better on the plate. Uh, so, um, <laughs> so much for animal rights. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not vegetarian, so yeah, that's that I need to get out of the way. Uh, I think vegetarians are the worst enemies of animals. They compete with animals for food. But that said, um, Really, I am a Uganda human rights lawyer. I've been practicing human rights law now since 2005. Um, let me speak a little bit about what drove me into doing human rights law. My practice of human rights law is really informed by my background as a child, uh, growing up in a war zone, in the part of the country that was the epicenter of a very violent conflict for nearly 20 years. Um, I grew up in this conflict between the Lord's Resistance Army. Uh, as many of you may know, it's a very brutal rebel group that was involved in abduction of children in northern Uganda, uh, forceful, I mean, forceful conscription of people into the rebel ranks, uh, massive uh, killings, uh, destruction of property, uh, and so many other crimes. So I grew up in that sort of environment, um, witnessing some of the most atrocious things that a child can ever see. Um, I um, jumped over dead bodies in the morning to go to primary school uh, after a night of killings. Uh, I saw my own sister uh, being abducted into rebellion and spending eight years uh, as a sex slave uh, in the rebel group. Uh, luckily for us, she came back. Um, I saw my father being beaten, uh, frog marched and beaten uh, by government forces. Uh, I saw a whole community being displaced into what was called 
internally displaced people's camps or IDPs. Um, these were really large camps created uh, in which people were asked to congregate. Um, the conditions in those camps were extremely deplorable. People died in hundreds um, because of uh, all kinds of diseases. So I grew up in that sort of environment as a child. And, and I was extremely very bitter uh, because what I was reading in literature and hearing on radio was quite different from my lived experience as a child. And that made me extremely, extremely bitter. So initially I wanted to be a journalist uh, you know, because I would listen to the BBC growing up as a child. Um, and I thought, look, this is nice. This is a good way of telling my story. Um, so I began to write letters to the editor in the newspapers. Um, I began to get involved in doing a lot of debates around, around schools. But it occurred to me that complaining about it and writing about it only wouldn't help me solve the problem. Uh, I was then inspired to go to law school. And uh, I went to law school in 2000, the year 2000. Um, and, and every year of my university holiday, I didn't spend time in the city. Uh, I went back to the village to work with uh, very poor people to teach them about human rights, to teach them about um, uh, their responsibilities, to help women groups uh, to know what their rights are uh, in the law of succession and many other you know, land rights and things like that. Um, so that is what really inspired me to become a human rights lawyer. And I have been practicing human rights law since 2005. I now work for a human rights group in Uganda called Chapter 4 Uganda. Chapter 4 is the Bill of Rights in our Constitution. So this organization is named after the Bill of Rights. The primary work that we do is providing uh, legal services to the most vulnerable uh, and poor people in our country. Uh, we do that for free. We mobilize resources from around the world. But enough said about me. Let me now talk about Uganda as a country. Many of you perhaps, uh, if you have uh, heard about Uganda, know that Uganda is uh, one of those small countries in East Africa, a country that got its independence from the British in 1962. A country that from 1962 to 1986 was blighted with armed conflict and violent overthrow of governments. Many people abroad know about Idi Amin everywhere I go. Uh, Idi Amin was a dictator in Uganda in the 1970s. Um, but governments since 1962 have only been changed by uh, means of a coup. Uh, that is to say that the country has never seen a peaceful transfer of power. Now, in 1982, in 1986, a new rebel group took over power and has remained in power since then. So for the last 30 years, we've had one head of state. The important thing about that is, first of all, it is ensured that Uganda is a fairly peaceful country. We don't have active rebellion within the boundaries uh, of our country. The only rebellion that we had has now been exported to another country. So the LRA is now fighting uh, and doing the same things that they were doing in Uganda, in Central African Republic, and parts of uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So Uganda is fairly peaceful as a country, and, and, and has had 
a fairly stable economic growth, at least if you believe the figures that governments uh, give you, I will indicate that we have had a stable uh, growth of our economy and over time. Uh, but that is only as far as the good things go, because I think in my view there is what I think is a perversion of electoral processes by not just Uganda, but a couple of African leaders uh, who, like in Uganda, organize election after every five years. Okay? So we have elections. It's beautiful, right? After every five years. It looks like a democracy. But in fact, these sort of elections are far from a democratic process. Whether you look to Uganda, whether you look to Zimbabwe, you look to the Gambia, look at Ethiopia, look at Rwanda, uh, look at Eritrea. In all of these African countries, there seems to be a perversion of electoral processes that gives the sense of a democracy, but in fact in form, but in fact in substance, is far from a democracy. It's an election that is characterized by uh, massive uh, vote buying, the use of resources to, uh, to buy votes. It's an election that is characterized by uh, widespread intimidation of the opposition. These are elections that are carried out in the context of uh, restrictive civic space and the undermining of fundamental human rights. Um, that is exactly what has happened in Uganda. So you might think elections are good, we have elections after every five years, but in fact, in substance, it is very far from a democratic uh, process. Uganda had its big election just in February of this year. That election uh, has been characterized by all international election observers as falling short of meeting international standards because it was characterized by the things I have mentioned. The leading opposition leader in the country was, uh, was uh, arrested on election day and kept under house arrest for 45 days without a charge. Um, even when the restrictions have been lifted, he's unable to move freely uh, in the country because everywhere he goes, he's being followed by armed men. People who gather around him to support, to cheer him on are being beaten by uh, mean-looking uh, men who are masked and wearing black T-shirts. Uh, even his attempt to try and challenge the elections in the courts were prevented because the government wouldn't allow him to access his lawyers. Uh, the government wouldn't allow him uh, to even go to his offices. The party offices were raided. Um, another candidate, of course, had the chance to go to court to challenge the elections, but even when he went to court, yeah, his lawyer's offices were ransacked and evidence that was supposed to be put before a court of law were stolen from his law firm. Um, witnesses, individual people who are supposed to go and give testimonies in court were arrested. Some have disappeared, others have turned up dead. Um, so, so the elections are far from really uh, a democratic process. So in my view, I think broadly speaking, the first thing is that this intellectual perversion of what seems to be a democracy, but in fact in substance, is far from a democratic process. The second thing that I want to speak about is that Democracy used to be an inconvenience. It used to be uh, something leaders have to struggle with. But now there is a real intellectual challenge to what amounts to a democracy. There is this false sense that uh, people are being asked to choose whether they want 
a democratic government or they want a benevolent dictator. It's between elections and having social services. The example that uh, many of these African leaders use, including my own leader, is, is for the people to make a choice between what is now seen as the, the Singapore model of a hugely successful um, you know, uh, country in terms of economic development, good infrastructure, fairly good schools. And said, do you want that or do you want democracy? In fact, democracy is now being viewed as disruptive. Uh, and, 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 and therefore, it is, it is less and less becoming an attractive option. Uh, in many countries, there are now even suggestions um, of, of having these leaders uh, serve in power for as long as they want. So, so the, the core thing that defines democracy is now under challenge. And Uganda is, is not any different. Uh, we are being reminded, for example, about our past, and that uh, in the past you had insecurity, now you, know, you have peace, you have economic development, you know, what more do you want? You should feel happy about roads being constructed and things like that. So I think that that is what is happening. Um, the, the, the third one is really the clever use of legislation as a tool for entrenchment of autocracy. Um, the, that's a bit scary. The, the, uh, <laughs> the, the use of what appears to be a legitimate enactment of legislation um, to restrict, I mean, to restrict uh, the space for human rights enjoyment. And, uh, you know, if, if a country takes a law to parliament, the law is enacted, it appears a democratic process is the rule of the majority. But in fact, if you look at the details of these processes, you will see the process of enactment of this legislation. One is manipulated. Uh, the case in Uganda, is, which I can give you, is the one for uh, term limits. Our president had executive term limits to be in office for two terms of five years each. When the time came for him to, to leave, uh, he amended the law uh, to provide for a third term, to allow him to contest again. But in the process of amending the law, what he did was a very clever uh, process. I don't know if it's clever, but quote-unquote clever, is to pay members of parliament actually with money, five million shillings, which is about, what, $2,000, each member of parliament, for them to amend the constitution to allow him to contest for a third term. So a process that was really a corrupt process was then packaged and presented as a legitimate concern of the people of Uganda through the elected leaders. So what you see now is the use of legislation to restrict the space for human rights and to entrench uh, autocracy. And in Uganda, we've seen this manifest itself in the enactment of several legislations. Um, the most recent of, of, of them being the NGO Act, which is the Non-Government Organizations Act. Uh, government passed this law, which essentially really restricts the space for civic organizing uh, substantially and, and reduces that space to a permit system. In, in effect, if you want to run a charity, you must seek the permission of government. You must have a permit to organize uh, as a civil society organization. If you organize without a permit, that is a crime uh, that can attract prison sentence and heavy fines. In granting you the permit 
to organize and in revoking the permit, they have very wide discretion. The law allows them, for example, to, uh, to, to revoke a permit or to refuse a grant of one if in the view of the NGO board or really the, the, the branch of government that is responsible for regulating the civil society sector, if the work of an organization is against the dignity of the people of Uganda. Now, it's difficult to know what is against the dignity of the people of Uganda. Uh, it is very wide discretionary power. Um, they can also refuse registration or, re or revoke uh, your registration on grounds that it is in public interest to do so. So it is really uh, a law that appears legitimate. The process of enactment appears to be uh, going through elected leaders, but in effect, it's a process that only entrenches dictatorship. The second uh, example is the Public Order Management Act, um, a law that essentially provides for anybody seeking to challenge government by means of demonstration or procession to, in effect, seek the permission of the police to do so. The wording of the law is that you must inform the authorities, but in practice, that is translated to mean actual permission. So you, you cannot demonstrate, you cannot have a public demonstration unless you have the permission uh, of the Inspector General of Police. The third one really is, is, is the targeting of minorities. Um, uh, in the case of Uganda, there have been different minorities at different times of our history that have been used as a political pawn uh, in this big game, uh, first you have ethnic minorities, people who uh, um, either find themselves in remote parts of the country or in parts of the country where you have mineral resources. Um, in the case of Uganda, there are really two tribes that come to mind. The first is the Batwa. The Batwa are forest people whose entire life is around the forest. Um, but because there was a big World Bank funding uh, for tourism, for the preservation of mountain gorillas, the entire Batwa community were removed from the forest and have been rendered landless. As an ethnic minority, uh, their entire culture, their very fabric of their culture is being destroyed. Uh, they are landless. They have no uh, place to call their own community. Uh, the second group really has been sexual minorities. Um, as many of you perhaps know, the Ugandan population uh, is not very welcoming to people with different sexual orientation, lesbians, gays, and transgender. The argument that is common is that it is against African culture, that it is against uh, Christian values, uh, and that there is such a thing as a gay agenda to recruit uh, people into homosexuality and turn them into lesbians and gays and transgender. Uh, this uh, myth of what I call really misrepresentations is being peddled by uh, Christian fundamentalists, majorly from the United States, uh, who argue that uh, homosexuals are, you know, are after children, they want to sodomize children. But that argument has been used in a game of politics. Each time somebody wants to get elected to office, they kind of jump onto this issue and present this as a rallying point for elections. Um, 
The last one really before I can turn it over to you all for questions is the question of the central role of Uganda as a country in the fight against terror. Uganda is a very important uh, player in the region in the fight against terror and a very key ally of the West um, and I hope by West I also include Australia uh, and the US uh, in the war against terror. It is seen as the, the leader in the region uh, in the fight against terror and in fact they have done some commendable jobs uh, across the region. Uganda has had boots on the ground in four different countries uh, over the last 15 years. Uh, we were the first country in Africa to deploy in Somalia to fight Al-Shabaab. Uh, since then, of course, other countries have joined, but Uganda was the key and the first country to deploy troops in the ground to fight Al-Shabaab. Uh, Uganda has been uh, the country that has kept the government of South Sudan in power um, over the last 18 months. We have deployed actively in South Sudan. We have also deployed to fight in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo uh, in, in the fight first to overthrow a government uh, in, in DRC, but subsequently to, uh, to, to fight a rebel group that is operating in the eastern part of the DRC. And, and now we are also deployed in Central African Republic together with the U.S. to pursue uh, the LRA. So, so we've done some commendable job in the fight against terror. But what that has meant for domestic issues is that it has shielded the state from scrutiny. Uh, the state has used this very cleverly. Uh, each time there is uh, a demand for better observance for human rights, uh, they quickly remind world leaders of how they are, being, you know, they are being very helpful in the fight against terror. But oftentimes I've also played countries against each other. Uh, if the U.S., for example, begins to make uh, demands about respect for human rights, uh, we, we look to China and say, we, you know, don't worry about your aid, we, we can do without it, we will look to China for aid. Uh, you know, oftentimes our head of state has paid visits to Iran, to Russia, uh, in times when he wants to, to project a possibility of moving east or moving Russia or wherever it is. And, and this has tended to uh, to make Western countries panic and drop the bar in scrutinizing our own human rights records in Uganda. So I'll leave it there and leave the rest for questions. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much. Yeah. What an astonishing <coughs> array of historical, political, methodological ideas that we've just had just in those 45 minutes. Um, I'd love to open it up to all of your questions. In terms of a quite short to medium term solution to the issue of human rights, if um, the government has the option of moving towards China and Russia, what are feasible options for you know, um, the people of Uganda to hopefully move democracy or human rights improvements? If Want to take a few questions and then answer? Okay, maybe we'll just maybe we'll take a few. Thank you. I had a question about your um, 
the overturning of the Anti-Homosexuality Act, is that on the basis of a breach of a human rights provision in your constitution? And I'm curious because you may or may not know that Australia doesn't have a human rights act or anything that the constitution protects. Maybe we'll just start with those two. Yeah. Okay, can I start? Sure. Uh, well, thank you for your questions. Um, so I didn't get the names that people ask, but so I just address you as a lady or gentleman. <laughs> um, what are the short-term and long-term options for the people of Uganda? Well, fundamentally first, I think the point that has to be made is that the primary duty of demanding for more democratic society rests with the people of Uganda. Nobody else is going to come and give it to us. Mm. Uh, it, is, it is our duty, it's our responsibility to demand of our leaders uh, better accountability, more respect for human rights, and a democratic government. So, so we acknowledge that that is the first line uh, that we have, to, we have to use in defending human rights and asking for more accountability. But we are also cognizant of the fact that we now live in a global world global community where uh, an attack in Sydney by a terrorist group has an impact uh, in, ca in, in world capitals, you know, uh, miles away, oceans away, or seas away. We are aware that a financial meltdown uh, in Washington, D.C. impacts the global economy, that Uganda is a member of that global community, and that uh, it has to live by and abide by the values of that global community. And in return, the global community have a responsibility in ensuring that uh, they demand that Uganda lives by those values. And, 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 and that because of this interconnectedness and interdependence between and among states, um, foreign governments have a responsibility because Uganda, as, as, as you've been told, is still dependent on aid, largely dependent on aid. Uh, our development budget is largely funded grants and uh, loans from different, uh, different foreign capitals, um, the World Bank, China, you know, uh, all, all manners of powerful countries across the world. Those countries have a responsibility to make sure that their aid is not used for entrenching undemocratic practices, that their aid and support is no excuse for people turning a blind eye to democratic concerns of older Ugandans. Because ultimately, a more democratic uh, Uganda is a better global actor than a less democratic Uganda. So, so I think that, that that for me is what I see as uh, one, our role, but also what I think is long term um, in terms of what can be done to ensure uh, uh, better democracy. The second one is about the Anti-Homosexuality Act. First, it is important to note that there are two sets of laws in Uganda. You have the 1950 British legislation of having sex against the order of nature. Now, I don't know what it is to have sex against the order of nature, but that sort of law has been in our law books since 1950 and still is on our law books. The practice is that that law has been largely idle and, 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 and not used up until last year when two people were convicted under the law really for uh, non-consensual uh, sex with minors. Um, that's the first set of laws and still exist on our law books. Uh, the second one 
with the 2013 Anti-Homosexuality Act, which provided for harsher sentence for same-sex conduct. The initial proposal was the death penalty, but that was replaced with life imprisonment. But more importantly also, the law prohibited work alongside, let me say, it, it made it unlawful for people who are doing advocacy on the rights of LGBTI persons. You would actually go to jail under what was called promotion of homosexuality. So that's the law we challenge. The challenge that we put before court was twofold. The first leg of the challenge was a procedural challenge, namely that in enacting that legislation, the procedures for enactment of the law, or of all laws, was not followed. Namely that there was no quorum uh, in the House, because to enact legislation, our law requires that you must have at least two-third majority in the House. And that when an issue of that nature is raised, the Speaker of Parliament has the duty to do a head count to determine that there are at least two-thirds of all members of Parliament in the House. So that's, that's the first leg of the argument. The second leg of the argument that we put before the court were a range of human rights violations, the right to privacy, non-discrimination, the right to access to health, the rights of minorities, and a whole range of other issues. Uh, but what the court did was to take the easier route to determine whether this law was unconstitutional purely on a procedure and technical ground. Um, uh, the, the law was nullified simply because it was passed without quorum on the day it was enacted. What that meant was that the court missed an important opportunity to once and for all determine whether uh, every Ugandan has the same right and protection under the law irrespective of their sexual orientation. But at individual levels, what that did was to allow people who are being investigated and being prosecuted under the law uh, to gain temporary freedom. Uh, all those cases were dropped. All those investigations were, 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 were also dropped. And people gained temporary freedom, but left open the debate whether under our Constitution and the Bill of Rights, uh, we have equal protection under the law for everybody. Yeah, just briefly, I'll, I'll say that, um, you know, for good or for bad, I think um, on your question, President Museveni cares a great deal about his international reputation. Um, and I think part of his desire to keep the Ugandan military involved in regional uh, conflicts is to keep Uganda as a sort of critical regional and international player. Um, you know, we don't see him um, completely willing to turn away from um, his, you know, Western donors. Even though he does criticize them, he says lots of damning things when they are critical of him. Even in recent days, he's been pretty harsh on his donors who have been quite critical of the electoral situation and the post-electoral situation. But the truth is, he loves his reputation with the U.S. military at a deep level. And his own son was trained in the United States. Many of the highest-ranking generals in the country had military training in both the U.S. and the U.K. The U.S. military comes through frequently and puts many medals on their chests 
the head of the, the chief of the defense forces in Uganda has been uh, brought into the U.S. Army Hall of Fame. There is a deep relationship between the U.S. military and the U.K. military and the Ugandan military. As many of you know, AFRICOM, this African uh, command that the U.S. Uh, has established in the last few years, uh, has uh, yearned for partnership across Africa, and the U Ugandans have been by far the most willing and the first ones in line time and time again for a whole range of reasons, I think some more problematic than others. So while I think there are, you know, sort of threats to turn to other partners around the world who may be less um, interested in Uganda's human rights situation, I don't think it's as dire as some of the news reports sometimes make it sound. And the evidence of that is actually probably in the Anti-Homosexuality Act, where, um, you know, in my time of working on human rights issues, it was pretty much the only time sadly, where we saw all of uh, the international partners operating in Uganda come together and really assertively stand for a human rights issue. And while I believe firmly that they were standing up for, you know, what was right and good under human rights law, they clearly were under a great deal of pressure from their own domestic constituencies in their own home countries uh, who cared about the rights of LGBTI Ugandans and who wanted their governments to stand up. So, you know, it's the first time, for example, that the Norwegian ambassador to Uganda was getting, you know, constant phone calls from LGBTI Norwegians asking what Norway was doing about Uganda's anti-homosexuality law. So they were standing up for a good reason, but they were standing up because of what they felt was, you know, their own domestic pressures. And the result of all of that was that they were extremely engaged, extremely critical, and pushed a lot. And I think there's no doubt that all of that international pressure, including calls from people like, you know, Obama and Clinton over the years, but also a whole range of other world leaders, um, led to the constitutional case actually having a hearing because there's no also doubt that that case jumped the queue in a phenomenal way after all that pressure. Um, you know, in my time of working on Uganda, there have been over a dozen really critical challenges on human rights grounds uh, filed at the Constitutional Court to a whole range of very problematic laws. The anti-terrorism law, the NGO, the, old, the previous NGO Act, not the recent one, but the old one, I mean, you, the, you can just list them down the line. There are so many important human rights challenges before the Constitutional Court. None of them have been heard in the last seven years. I mean, an average case would wait more than five years before that court. So suddenly we have this amazing situation in which the president signs a law in February and there's a hearing in August. It was remarkable. So I think um, that it's important to realize that despite some of the rhetoric around President Museveni's, you know, threats to go off to Iran to get money for his refinery and other things, when there is a real clear coming together amongst the uh, Western donors to put pressure on him, he tends to find ways, although as Nicholas said, you know, that ruling was on procedural grounds, which saved everybody a great deal of face about needing to address the substantive rights issues. Uh, 
in Uganda and living in the Uganda election. Um, I was really in Uganda and butterfly in a field at the time when uh, the people were doing this. Uh, yeah, you know. Uh,
era sì il mistero che io voglio capire il loro comune in that direction now what's the role of international community in this international community in this presidency that only so if I can just paraphrase just for the audience um, the role of the ICC specifically um, in Uganda and the role uh, and, 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 and what, what can be done about term limits in other places in Africa mm -hmm. thank you for this question those are such small questions. Yeah. <laughs> if you could just cover that in the next three seconds. ICC in Kenya, let me yeah. just wrap yeah, that just one wrap up. up. Yeah. Yeah. Are you taking other questions or are we good? Um, why don't we just stick with that for now? Yeah. I'm going to quickly do mine here. Thanks for the question. It's really nice to see so many Ugandans in Australia. I have to say, Nicholas and I have done a few of these talks and we always get the Ugandan lobby, so we love it. Um, well, frustratingly enough, international human rights law is silent on the issue of term limits, and human rights law works very specifically within a mandate of international human rights law. So we don't take a specific position on the issue of term limits. Many countries don't actually have term limits. The, I think our argument would be that in each one of these situations, it's uh, that there is a clear pattern where when the issue of term limits comes up, it's in a context where there are real serious civil and political rights problems and the effort to change uh, a constitution to remove term limits comes with a huge number of human rights violations. So we absolutely document and work on all of those issues while staying sort of neutral, let's say, on the issue of the term limit itself. So, I mean, Congo is a good example where there's, you know, really been a very large number of arrests of opposition activists who are, uh, you know, critical of, of President Kabila's efforts to remove term limits. Some of the human rights activists in Congo who've been arrested have been in jail for over a year now. Uh, some have been disappeared. Obviously, the situation in Burundi has just been horrific. It's been a terrible year for Burundi. Uh, with the number of extrajudicial executions that have gone on and, and many, many Burundians fleeing the country. So, you know, I think what can everyone do about it? I mean, I will say I think that generally speaking, compared to when President Museveni amended the constitution in Uganda, we've seen more criticism of term limits this time around. The U.S. and a couple of other countries have been much more assertive on saying that they want to work with partners who respect and abide by term limits. Um, you know, which is a good thing in and of itself because there was certainly a lot of frustration that nobody was very critical of President Museveni's moves or there was less criticism internationally, in, you know, in 2005. What can anyone do about it? You know, I think that that's a tough one. I think that it's going to be up to the citizens of those countries to try to, you know, use what space there is and express themselves about those issues and to try to push their parliamentarians to not necessarily rubber stamp the will of the executive. But obviously that, you know, that can be anything from, you know, a bad political choice to lethal depending on where you are and in which country you are. So it's perhaps not surprising that parliamentarians struggle with standing up to the power of the executive. Um, I think the best thing we can do as Human Rights Watch is to document the abuses, to clearly lay out, for example, the threats to free expression and violations of free expression to show the patterns of repression and the impact of self-censorship um, and to try to lay out how those abuses can, can make it impossible to determine the will of the people in some situations. Uh, on the, what were the other questions? It was ICC in Kenya. 
Yeah, it's been obviously, again, a, a frustrating time for accountability in Kenya. As far as, you know, possible paths forward, it's, I think, looking relatively bleak, I won't lie. Um, we hope that there'll be some efforts at reparations. There have been some, you know, President Kenyatta has made some commitments to reparations to victims of the post-electoral violence. Um, and so at least that would be a starting place. Whether we'll see any domestic accountability, you know, I remain skeptical, but we continue to push for that. So, you know, those cases have been very frustrating, and I think, I, I have to admit, I've been a little bit shocked at, you know, people, they may have rejoiced, I guess, as individuals that the cases were dropped, but certainly, you know, these big efforts, I mean, there was a large Thanksgiving service to sort of express gratitude that the cases were dropped was pretty tone deaf to the, to the victims who, you know, suffered so much, lost so much, and for whom there's been really just absolutely no accountability. So we'll have to see. Kenya has elections next year. We certainly hope that, you know, big, big violence can be averted. But Kenya remains really, I think, quite, um, yeah, just precarious to me. Um, given the long-standing grievances that remain, you know, that predated 2007 but continue to this day and, if anything, have sharpened since that violence. So I won't oversimplify it. And on the question of Uganda and the ICC, I mean, I'm happy to leave it to Nicholas. My sense is that Uganda probably will not pull out, and I know that they were not leading the pack in the most recent AU discussions, though they've said that they're generally supportive. I don't think they'll pull out while the case against the high-ranking LRA commander is there. I think it would look a bit duplicitous whether they pull out when and if Dominic Ongwen has a, you know, a, a final conclusion to his case is, an, is another matter, but we're still pretty far away from a final conclusion of that case. There is one LRA commander facing charges at the, at the ICC. Uh, Marcy and the rest of my fellow countrymen and women, uh, good to see you here and good to know that you're keeping the fire burning, so excellent. Um, always a pleasure to meet my my own in different parts of the world, and I definitely share your story. I, I know the story of a beam. Uh, if I can just quickly just tell the story of that hospital. Uh, in the middle of an election campaign, one of the candidates, in an effort to highlight the problems of the health sector, took it upon himself to visit health centers and hospitals, and. Um, in the case of a beam hospital, he went into a beam hospital and found the hospital in a state of disrepair, uh, to say the least, really. Um, it had no power, it had no running water, the patients had no bed, there was no medicine. Uh, that visit brought a lot of attention on the hospital. And the two medical workers who, had, who spoke to him, but also who uh, spoke to the media about the plight of the hospital, were immediately suspended uh, for speaking about the hospital and what they call revealing government secrets. Um, we, we did provide legal services to them, but you know, thankfully they have since been reinstated. But, but the point that anybody else who tried to talk about those hospitals faced a lot of intimidation is, 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 is a fact. In fact, from that moment onwards, all the candidates who were, who were campaigning were never allowed to access hospitals. Uh, in one incident, one of the candidates, who himself is a medical doctor, uh, had an accident in his convoy and was ferrying people who were injured to hospital, and he was denied access to the hospital. 
So, but anyway, that's the story about Bim, and um, she can tell it better because she was in there and she she knows. So, Marcy, please, uh, if you find time, tell them about that story. The question about the ICC, I think it is important to give some context to this uh, to this matter. This is a very important question. First, that the International Criminal Court was a court that was created to try grave international crimes. It was supposed to play a complementary role to domestic prosecutions. It was never intended to replace domestic prosecutions. That is to say the court is only supposed to intervene in situations and countries where the country is unable to prosecute those crimes or unwilling to prosecute those crimes. At the creation of the court, at the inception of the court, African states were the majority state parties to the Rome Statute, the law that created the court. African states overwhelmingly signed up to the court. And in the case of Uganda, Uganda was the first country to refer a case to the court. So the first ever case that that court handled was a case from northern Uganda. Uh, President Museveni was very happy to refer this case to the ICC for investigations and subsequent prosecutions. So African states have played an important role in creating this court. In fact, there was even a Ugandan judge at the ICC. Uh, the current chief prosecutor of the court uh, is an African, uh, Madame Fatou Bensouda, I think from the Gambia. Uh, you've had uh, many Africans serving on that court. Uh, but increasingly what we have seen, and maybe be even before I say that, most of the cases before the court are cases that were referred voluntarily by African states. Uh, I think with the exception of only two that were referred by the UN Security Council. So Africa cooperated with the court and in fact was largely responsible for, for supporting that court and bringing that court into operation at the initial stages. Well, countries like the U.S. refused to sign up to the court up until now. I think Israel is one other country that has just refused to sign up to the court. Uh, on the African continent, there are a few countries like Sudan uh, that have not signed up to the court. So Africa was integral in the process of creating that court. But what we have increasingly seen is the opposition to the court by African leaders, an attempt to undermine the court, undermine the work of the court on the continent, whether it was in Kenya, whether it was in, in, in the Sudan, whether it was uh, uh, in South Africa. So there are attempts to undermine the court. This attempt is really driven by, not by the fact that there, were, there are no cases worth trying in those countries, but really primarily because I think African leaders never thought they would become subjects of investigations by this court. When it became clear that no sitting head of state would be spared if they committed crimes, they then woke up to the fact that uh, it's, it's, it's coming to get them. And so they began to mobilize to withdraw from the court. And President Museveni was very instrumental in that discussion in the early stages. So when the Kenyan head of state was found himself before the court, the Sudan head of state found himself in, you know, before the court, the former head of state uh, of uh, Ivory Coast found himself before the court, it became clear that they were a target. They were possible suspects for the court. And so they have begun to undermine the court, making the case for an African court, an African system. Now that, that reason is disingenuous, primarily because 
any country that has a commitment to try those crimes in their country wouldn't have the court intervening, right? So if you don't want the ICC to intervene, the best thing to do is make your domestic court systems functional, simple, clear, address the concerns of victims. Because whether it is Kenya, DRC, South Africa, whatever it is, they are victims who are yearning for justice, just like the victims in Kenya are yearning for justice. The second reason really is a criticism about the court itself, because there's no doubt about the fact that the court has had some structural inadequacies and difficulties. First, the court has primarily focused on investigating crimes on the African continent. At the expense of other blaring crimes, take for example the war in Iraq, the use of torture, the invasion of a foreign country by the allied forces led by the US. The court has not taken any substantial step to investigate those cases meaningfully and bring prosecutions, giving the impression that the court is going after the weak uh, you know, of all the world powers. There are other cases like Israel, what Israel is doing in the, in the Gaza Strip. These are cases that would merit the court's intervention. The court hasn't intervened, and so it gave the impression that the court is biased, the court is therefore not useful and not serving its purpose, and therefore giving the African leaders an opportunity to make the case that the court wasn't serving its function. Uh, in my view, the problem of the court was really, in my view, the problem of a, the first prosecutor the court appointed. He was doing more politics than doing prosecutions. He didn't do good investigations. So yes, the court has structural weaknesses, but I think the court has an important role to play. President Museveni and the African leaders have used that court to meet their own ends, but I think that uh, it is no indictment on the necessity of the court to be there. But if the court is to have an important role to play international criminal justice, it has to address the question of structural weaknesses that have given rise to grave concerns about how that court is operating. Uh, as you know, Uganda has a case before the court that's ongoing. Uh, finally, even though it was the first case to be referred, took more than over a decade for a case to start, there is now a Ugandan uh, who is being tried before the court. Uh, a former commandant of the uh, rebel group that was working in northern Uganda. So Uganda, as Maria said, I don't see it uh, withdrawing from the court uh, because it has an active situation in the court and is cooperating with the court. Uh, but what I see, uh, again, to come back to the question of Kenya, is the court has to deal with the new phenomenon of leaders just determined to undermine the court because the court is primarily dependent on cooperation of states. It has no force of its own. It cannot do anything if heads of states just refuse to cooperate. Look at Sudan. Uh, the court's investigation in Sudan has been completely undermined because the head of state has simply refused to cooperate with the court. The court is investigating the case from outside the country. It makes it very difficult. In Kenya, the sitting head of state undermined the work of the court by intimidating witnesses by tampering with investigations and just making it difficult to make a case uh, that, that could pass the test uh, that the court requires. So yes, the court is, is, has problems, but the court is also necessary to address what I think is grave human rights violations across the continent. We've, uh, we've actually gone over. Um, I, I must say that you know, as, a, as a teacher of human rights myself, if I were to design a course I couldn't have chosen two better speakers. 
that touched on political imperatives, that touched on the presence of diaspora actors, of the importance of local actors, of the ICC, of the press, of the media, all in an hour and 15 minutes. Will you please join me in thanking Maria and Nicholas.